Hey guys, I'm Pastor Jason Shirley. I'm the associate pastor right here at Word of Life Church in Carlsbad, New Mexico. And I'm really excited that you have joined us today online. Just a couple of things. I want you to drop us a line if you're watching wherever in the world and let us know where you're watching from. We would love to hear from you. Second, if you want to partner with us today in a financial way, then you can give by texting 84321 and just text your amount, or you can go to our website, wolcarlsbad.com, and you can click the Give tab and give that way. The last thing today is that if you have any needs or anything like that that we can partner with you on, then drop us a line and send us that, and we're going to partner with you in prayer. I believe today is going to be a wonderful day. I want you to open up your heart to receive from the Word of God today and always remember that God is madly in love with you. Let's get to the service. Amen. Well, it is a good day. Just so appreciative uh, of uh, the, the time that we had to get away. And, uh, you know, something popped up on my... Uh, Facebook memories this morning, something that I posted, I guess it was three years ago, and, and I thought, you know what, that's still good, and, and here, it went something like this, I can't tell to you exactly what I said, but it, it was something like this, that, that even if you don't know how to pray, uh, it's okay, pray anyway, because uh, you see, when you're, when you're a parent, and you're, trying, you're having a conversation with a newborn. You're not discussing the deep secrets of life with a newborn. Well, when we come to the Lord, we're new in this thing. We don't necessarily know how to converse with the God who knows everything. And so, you know, conversation with a newborn consists of something like, Mommy loves you. Daddy loves you. You're beautiful. You're wonderful. You're awesome. You know, you're a blessing, you know, and, and all of these things just reaffirming who they are. Well, you know, anybody ever think that it might be all right to converse with the father of the universe in that way? You know, and he says things like, Daddy loves you. Father loves you. Father is for you. Father's on your side. Father, you know, and as you begin to grow, the conversation deepens. It, it begins to get deeper and 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 uh, more of life's uh, issues and secrets and things like that begin to come into discussion and, and more knowledge of the word but don't ever think because you don't know the deep secrets you can't talk to God because he's your father more than anything that's who he wants to be today we are reintroducing love and um, you know when we when we say love so many thoughts may be going through your mind of, uh, okay, what's what's Pastor going to talk about today? Is this going to be about relationships? Is this going to be about loving your neighbor? Is this going to be about how you need to love God? Is this well? We're going to start by talking about, I mean, just the very basic elements of what love is, and let me say it this way: who love is, because love is a person. 
1 John chapter 4, verse number 8 says, Love, God is love. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. So if you examine your life and you say, well, you know, I don't know how I'm doing in this love thing. I don't, you know, there's some people that are hard to love. And, and uh, well, how do, you, how do you love somebody that's unlovely? How do you love somebody that, that rejects your love? Well, let me just say this. The scripture I just quoted to you says, He who does not love does not know God. So what that tells me is if I want to love, if I find some area that I'm struggling to love someone in, if, if I'm looking at that and I'm, I'm really having a hard time with loving someone, what I need to do is know God more. Because God is love. And if I find I'm not loving, He said, if I don't love, it is because I don't know God. Alright? Does that make sense to anybody? Any, anybody on board with that? All right, well, let's, uh, let's begin this morning. You say, well, I thought that was the beginning. Well, it kind of was, but, uh, you know, in, in 1 John chapter 4, verse number 10, it says this, In this is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us. Not that we loved God, but that He loved us. Now, we hear so many people talk about, well, you know, I love the Lord. I love the Lord. You know, many years ago, was a, um, I'm not going to tell you how many, although it's no secret. Um, but many years ago, was a, as a kid growing up, um, we would be in church, and one of the things that was a regular thing that happened in church in those days was testimony service and someone would come up with, and they would lead testimony service and what that meant was you gave a testimony first and then you would invite others to stand up and give a testimony and so people would stand up and and one of the things that we heard so many times when people would stand up and begin to give a testimony they would just say, well, I, I just want to say I love the Lord. And, you know, and, and that's great. I, you know, I love the Lord. How many of you love the Lord? All right. So we, we love the Lord, but he is saying here what is more important to understand is not that you love God, but that he loved you. You see, because... No matter who you are, no matter how perfectly you attempt to love the Lord, you can never ever in your own ability, in your own strength, you can never measure up to the, the standard of love. What's, what's the standard of love? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might, See, that, that's the standard for, for loving God. You love the Lord with all your heart, 
not, not, that means there's no part of it that, that, you, that you're not loving God. You know, love the Lord with all your heart. Anytime you start talking about all of anything, you know, that's, that, that's a difficult thing. Well, I, I gave all I had. Probably not. You might have given a lot of what you had. You may have given all you knew how to give, but did you really give all of everything? When you, anytime you start talking about all, that, that's a difficult thing to, to really comprehend. Love the Lord with all your heart, with all your soul. With your soul, your mind, your will, your emotions. That means that, and, and when you're talking about all your soul, that's talking about there is never a moment that a thought does not cross your mind that is contrary to love. You know, as much as you want to love the Lord and as much as you love the Lord, there are moments when unloving thoughts cross your mind. Now, maybe you don't dwell on those, maybe you dismiss those quickly, but nonetheless, they were there. Love the Lord with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, or all your strength. All your strength. Well, I just didn't have enough, I didn't have any more energy to do any more. Well, you probably could have done something more. Maybe not a lot more, but probably something more. You know, did you ever, did you, did you ever see someone that you felt like you should share the gospel with them and you didn't? Anybody ever been there? That, that you felt like, you know, I really should have shared the gospel with that person, and I didn't. Well, that was love failure right there. You didn't, you didn't love the Lord with all your strength, because you could have shared the gospel with them. But you didn't. So you didn't love the Lord with all your strength. So here's why this is so important that we understand that it's not about that I love the Lord. It's about that the Lord loved me. Praise God. You know, I, I love to just, in, in my prayer time, I, I love to just thank you, Lord, for loving me. A lot, of, a lot of times, you know, we get caught, oh, Lord, I love you, I love you, Lord, I love you, Lord. And that's great. Nothing, nothing wrong with that. I hope you do love the Lord. But I, I like to thank Him for loving me. Because here's the thing. I didn't ever give Him any reason to love me. He just loved me because He is love. Praise God. Not that I love God, but that He loved me and He sent His Son to be the propitiation for my sin. He sent His Son to satisfy justice for my sin. Now, in Philippians chapter 3, verse number 10, notice this. Paul says, that I may know Him. That I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings being conformed 
to his death. Now notice what he did not say. That I may love the Lord more. No, he said that I may know him. That I may know him. To know him, he is love. So if I know him, he who does not love does not know God. Ephesians chapter 3, verse number 19. To know the love of Christ. This is Paul's quest. He says to know the love of Christ, which passes knowledge. He said, I want to know the love of Christ. I understand and I know that I will never, ever fully know this side of heaven. I will never fully know the love of Christ. I will never fully comprehend the love of Christ. He said, passes knowledge. It's beyond my ability to know. My, beyond my ability to comprehend. And be filled. See, the more I know of the love of Christ, then the more I am filled with the fullness of God. To know the love of Christ which passes knowledge and be filled with the love or the knowledge, excuse me, to be filled with the fullness of God is what I was trying to say. To be filled with the fullness of God. 1 John chapter 4 verse number 19 says, we love because he first loved us. So your capacity to love is directly related to your understanding and your knowledge of Him. Praise God. The more you know Him, the more your capacity to love increases. Praise God. Now, 1 John 4, 8, I quoted this a moment ago, but here's what it says. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. Notice it didn't say God loves. It said God is love. You see, it's one thing to be something. It's another thing to do something. Usually if you, if you be something, you do something that is related to what you be. Okay? Now, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 13 says, If we are faithless, if we are faithless, he remains faithless faithful he cannot deny himself if we are faithless he remains faithful for he cannot deny himself so in other words if if he is if he's faithful for him to not be faithful would be for him to deny who he is now, let's take that over and let's relate that to love. John, 1 John 4 says he is love. So, if we could interchange this and say, if we are loveless, he remains love because he cannot deny himself. If, if being faithless is to deny who he is, which is faithful, 
then to not love is to deny who he is, which is love. So in other words, God cannot not love you. You realize that? Some, sometimes we, got to, we get to thinking, he, he couldn't possibly love me. If he only knew, well, he does know. And he still love. He still loves you. But, but, but you know, if he, only, if he only knew what I, what I did, if he only knew, well, he does know what you did. He does know what you thought. He does know what, uh, what, what's on the inside of in, in your innermost secrets, in, in the secret places of your being. He knows every bit of that, and he is still love because he cannot deny himself. Praise God. You see, there were two disciples, two of Jesus' 12 disciples, that... There's a very interesting point that can be made about them. One of them, everybody knows, Peter. Peter boasted of how much he loved the Lord. You know, in Matthew chapter 26, uh, verse 31 through 35, uh, we find, you know, Jesus talking about... uh, um, all will be made to stumble because of me and, and, and all this. And Peter stands up boldly and he says, you know, even if all the others fail, if all the others leave, if all the others deny you, I will never deny you and all this. And Jesus said, before the rooster crows tonight, you're going to deny me three times. And he did. But he was boasting. He said, Peter said, even if I have to die with you, I will never deny you. But then there was another disciple by the name of John. And John, how many of you have heard that John was the disciple that Jesus loved? Anybody heard that? That John's the disciple whom Jesus loved. You know who said that? John. John said that. That's the only place you'll find that in the Bible. Matthew didn't say it. Mark didn't say it. Luke didn't say it. John said it. He's the only one that said that. He called himself the disciple whom Jesus loved. Why? Because he had a strong sense of the Lord's love for him. Peter boasted about his love for the Lord. But John said, I'm the disciple whom Jesus loves. Now, when you begin to get, uh, get close to Jesus, you can't help but sense his love for you. You can't help but believe that you're, you know, I, I like to tell people this. I say, you're his favorite. So turn to the person next to you and say, I'm his favorite. Yeah. Now, now turn, to, turn, turn to the person and say, and, and now answer the person that just said that to you. And say, yeah, but I'm the one he loves. You see, because when we begin to know him, we can't help but sense 
See, John knew him, and he knew he was loved. Now, here's the difference. That night, just as Jesus said would happen, before the rooster crowed, John, uh, Peter denied that he even knew the Lord three times. But when Jesus was on the cross, John, the one whom Jesus loved, was the only one that was there. The rest of them all left. John was the only one that was there because he had a strong sense of the Lord's love for him. You see, people who think, well, I'm serving God when I go to church, they won't go very long. But people that understand that the Lord loves them, and I want to go and I want, because I want to be in the presence of the Lord because He loves me. Those people are going to stay. You know, I, I dare say if you look around at, at people who have at one time been in church and for one reason or another stopped coming, if you could really get them to be perfectly honest with you, you would find out that most of them forgot that they're loved. They may not even realize it, but they forgot that they're loved. They forgot that Jesus loves them. They forgot, you know, maybe we ought to sing that song more, Jasmine. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes. You need to do an arrangement of that. And, but, you know, why, why, why do we consider that a, a children's song? You know, shouldn't adults be conscious of the Lord's love for them as well? Now, the, that, that song, it goes like this, is Jesus loves me, this I know. For the Bible tells me so. Now, I like to say it like this. Jesus loves me. This I know. For my neighbor told me so. Now, why do I, why do I say it that way? Because most unbelievers don't read the Bible. So if, if their neighbor doesn't tell them, then they'll, they won't ever know. And so, Jesus loves me. I know this. Now, as a believer... I know it because the Bible tells me so. But I knew it first because somebody else told me so. Now, let your neighbor know that Jesus loves. This is why we, we talk about um, God is madly in love. That's become a theme around here. God is madly in love with you. And, and our mission is until the whole world knows that God is madly in love with them. Well, how are they going to know? Not because we tell them, well, go read your Bible. They're going to know because we tell them. He loves you. God is madly in love with you. Praise God. Now, many people have the wrong idea that, that God is somehow angry and just can't wait to find an excuse to punish them. Now, why do they have that idea? Well, sadly to say, it's because a lot of Christians believe that. Why do unbelievers believe that? 
I got a better question. Why do believers believe that? Why do Christians believe that? You know, um, in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, we find, we, we call 1 Corinthians 13 the love chapter because it talks, you know, really verse, beginning with verse number 4 um, down through about verse 8, it, it talks about love. Love is this, love is that. Well, remember the passage that I quoted out of John, uh, 1 John 4, verse number 8, it says God is love. Did you ever notice that 1 Corinthians 13, verse 4 starts out with love is? Now, John wrote God is love. Paul wrote to the Corinthians, love is. So, God is love, so if you want to find out, really, you could go through 1 Corinthians 13 and you could say, God is, instead of saying love is, because God is love, right? Now, here we go. Love suffers long and is kind, or as one translation says, love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not in uh, does not parade itself. Is not puffed up. Love does not behave rudely. Does not seek its own. Is not provoked. Thinks no evil. Does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. Bears all things. Believes all things. Hopes all things. Endures all things. Now I heard this passage of scripture preached on many many times. And it was always preached on in this context. You're supposed to walk in love. And if you walk in love, this is how you walk. This is how you live. And, and there's nothing wrong with that because it's, it's true. You are supposed to walk in love. You are, if, if you do walk in love, then this is the way you behave. But if God is love and this is what love is, then could we not say this is what God is? But yet God has been portrayed as being exactly the opposite of this. I mean, you, you think as you read through this, love is patient. Well, how many people see God as impatient? We've talked about God as impatient. Let me, let me give you a case in point. I, I need to go to this because... Uh, um, in Psalm 103, verse number 9, says this, He will not always strive with us, nor will he keep his anger forever. He will not always strive with us, nor will he keep his anger forever. Now, I heard many sermons on that, or, or many times that scripture was used to say, God's not going to put up with you forever. God's going to quit messing with you. He's going to get tired of you. He's going to get fed up with your antics. And he is, he's almost had it now. And you are on thin ice. And this was what was preached from this passage of Scripture. God is almost done with you. So you better watch it. And that's what people 
preached from this scripture. But how about let's put that scripture in context. Let, let's, let's read this. The word, the word uh, strive, he will not strive with us. Um, he, that it, from the Hebrew, it literally means contend with us. Um, or or um, make a complaint against us, or he will not always have a quarrel with us. And then it says he will not keep his anger forever. Um, it, it, that means to, uh, from the Hebrew, this word means to keep, to guard, to reserve, to maintain. Um, so when we look at this, see the, the world... Or, or the church, by and large, has painted this picture for the world that God is almost finished with you. But here's what he says. Let's go back and read Psalm 103. Verse number 6. The Lord executes righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses and his acts to the children of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger. Wow, is that in the same chapter with the Lord won't always strive with us and he's almost done with us? Is that in the same chapter? Yeah, it is. Let's read on. It says he is merciful and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in mercy. Yeah, but you see, you just keep messing up, so he's about finished with mercy. Well, isn't that what mercy means? I mean, there's no... Why, why would we care if he's merciful if we don't need mercy? The only reason that means anything to you the only reason mercy means anything at all to you is if you need mercy. Is if you have failed, if you have messed up, that's the only reason you need mercy. Why else would he tell you he is merciful except he knows you need mercy? You cry out for mercy when justice demands punishment. His mercies are renewed every morning. So he never runs out of mercy. He is merciful, full of mercy, and gracious. Gracious is his favor towards you, his favor upon you. Grace is that we receive what we don't deserve. Mercy says, I don't get what I do deserve, but grace says I do get what I did not deserve. And so he says, the Lord is merciful. He doesn't give me what I deserve. And he is gracious. He gave me what I didn't deserve. He is slow to anger, abounding in mercy. He will not always strive with us. Now, does that sound like, oh, well, his mercy just ran out? Not if you read it in context. You know, did, did, did he just run out of favor towards me? 
Not if you read it in context. If you read it in context, he's full of mercy. He's full of grace. He is gracious. So he will not always strive with us, nor will he keep his anger forever. He has not. Now notice this verse. Sounds like there's one verse right in the middle here that we pull out to mean something entirely different than what he's talking about. You know, you pull one phrase out of what somebody said, which was a part of a whole, and you pull one phrase out, and you say, well, the Lord's almost done with you. He's almost finished with you. He's almost out of mercy. He's almost out of grace towards you, and he's not going to put up with you forever. But he, he says he won't always strive with us, nor will he keep his anger forever. He has not dealt with us according to our sins. Now he goes right back to gracious again. He goes right back to merciful again. He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor punished us according to our iniquities. Do you realize that this passage of Scripture right here that we're reading right now is a prophecy of Jesus? The psalmist here is prophesying about what Jesus would be when he comes. And here he says, he will not always strive with us. He said, under the old covenant of law, there is a point of contention because we haven't, we haven't met the requirements of the law. But he said, he is not going to always strive with you about that. The day is going to come when the wrath and the anger and the judgment and the punishment of God is fully satisfied so he can quit striving with you. Now, when you begin to look at it that way, it has a completely different meaning. It doesn't mean God's tired of you. It means that God loves you so greatly that he is sending his son to pay the price and to settle the contention. He will not always strive with you, nor will he keep his anger forever. Keep his anger forever, that means he's not going to hang on to it. He's not going to keep it. He's going to let it go. He is going to release his anger so that he is not angry anymore. He's going to, as you would say to your kids, get over it. Praise God. And that's what the psalmist is telling us here. He will not always be in contention with you. He is going to get over it. Praise God. Because he's going to punish your sins on the person of Jesus. He's going to deal with you, not according to your sins, but he's going to deal with you according to what Jesus did. Praise God. So, here's the deal. Some will say, well, well what about that when you, when you willfully sin? I know, you know, when you're doing your best, when you're trying your hardest, I, I know, you know, all that's true, but, but, you know, what about when you willfully sin? Well, let me ask you a question. How many of you have ever accidentally sinned? And if you say, 
that you have, then you just willfully sin. How many of you have, you know, when you sin, you sin because you wanted to. You willfully sinned. Now, so, so what about that? What if, you know, here, here we go to, to Hebrews chapter 10, verse 26. For if we sin willfully after we have received the knowledge of the truth. Oh, see there, if you, if you know better, there it is right there. If you know better, then he goes on and he says, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. So if you sin willfully, you know better. And so if you do it willfully, then you are toast. You are done. That's the end of you. No more sacrifice for you. Well, let me help you understand that just a bit. Here we go. If we sin willfully after we have received the knowledge of the truth. Didn't Jesus say, I am the way, the truth, and the life? There no longer remains a sacrifice, but a fearful expectation of judgment. See, now we could preach that right there. There is a fearful expectation of judgment. We scare the living daylights out of everybody. Because everybody in the room, if they're honest with themselves, they know that they knew better and they did it anyway. So they willfully sinned after they knew better. And so we send everybody away afraid to go to sleep tonight. Now, let's go on. The certain fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation which will devour the adversaries. You know, you got to say it like that so people understand that this is serious stuff. Devours the adversaries. Anyone who has rejected Moses' law dies without mercy. See right there, without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Of how much more, of how much worse punishment do you suppose will be, brought, will be thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God underfoot and counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing and insulted the Spirit of grace. For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Now, if we just read that passage of Scripture right there without a real understanding of what he's talking about, that's devastating. I mean, that, that, that's a horrible thing. And, and, and the problem is every single one of us fall into that. But let me go through this slowly and let me talk to you about this. We're going to take away the fear, okay? Get, get ready to let the fear go. 
We're, we're going to get rid of the fear of this. For if we sin willfully, which every time we sin, we sin willfully. You can do it by accident. We have received, after we have received the knowledge of the truth. You knew better. And furthermore, you received the knowledge of Jesus. Then he says, we receive the knowledge of the truth. There no longer remains a sacrifice for us. Now, do we have a sacrifice for us? Jesus became our sacrifice, right? This is the knowledge of the truth. Jesus became our sacrifice. Jesus went to the cross and he became the sacrifice lamb. He is called the lamb that takes away the sin of the world. So the lamb who takes away the sin of the world and we sin willfully, he takes away the sin of the world. He is the sacrifice lamb. Now, it says, but we sin willfully after we know about the sacrifice. Now, what would be a sin after you know about the sacrifice? If I share the gospel of Jesus with you, and I tell you that Jesus came into this world, he came here and he identified with you, and he went to the cross, and he paid for all of your sins so you would never have to pay for them. And I tell you that good news, and then you sin willfully. What would that mean that you sinned willfully after you just heard what I just said? That would mean that you rejected that knowledge that I just gave you. That would mean that you said, well, you know, I, that's good for other people, but it's not good for me. I can do this by myself. I can do this on my own. What am I doing? I'm sinning willfully because I am willfully rejecting the message that I just heard. So if I hear that Jesus has become my sacrifice, but I refuse the sacrifice. didn't say God refuses the sacrifice. God never refuses Jesus' sacrifice. But it says, I re refuse the sacrifice. What have I done? I have willfully chosen to reject what Jesus did, and then he says, there remains no more sacrifice. In other words, Jesus suffered once, he's not going to suffer again. And the sacrifice he has already made for you is once for all time, and so if I reject that one, then there's not another one. Now, does that help a little bit? Does it help you understand and get, get past this scripture? If I reject what Jesus did for me, he's not going to do it again. If that sacrifice wasn't good enough, then there's no more. There's not another one. He's not coming back to die on the cross again. 
He's coming back, but not to die on the cross again. Not going to happen. And he says, if you do that, he says, there's no more sacrifice, but there is a certain fearful expectation of judgment, indignation that will devour the adversaries. No, so here's what he's saying. He said that Jesus came and he became the sacrifice for us, but you rejected the sacrifice. So therefore, all of the punishment that fell upon him for your sake now will fall upon you. Because you reject the way out. If you're in a building and the building's falling down, and somebody opens the door and says, get out, and you refuse to get out, the building's falling on you. Jesus became the sacrifice. He became the door. He became the way out. And if we refuse the way out, then all of the judgment falls on you. That's exactly what this passage of Scripture is saying. He said, anyone who rejected Moses' law dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. So he said there was a, there was a penalty for rejecting Moses' law. Moses' law said if you bring the sacrifices to the altar and, and your sacrifice is received on the altar in the Holy of Holies, then you are cleansed, your sins are covered. And he says, so if you don't do that, Moses gave the law of how to deal with your sins. If you refuse to do that, he says, now we are under a new covenant in which Jesus has become the sacrifice. He says, how much more if you reject his sacrifice? And he says, you know, the, the only thing left for you is judgment. That the judgment falls on you. Now, he did not say, some people say, well, this is the unpardonable sin. If you sin after you know better, this is the unpardonable sin. Well, first of all, I don't know where that term unpardonable sin came from, but, uh, you know, people like to throw that out a lot, and a lot of people are in a mess because they think they've committed it. And they don't even know what it is. Okay, so here's the deal. This doesn't say that you're doomed forever. You're doomed until you change your mind. If you reject the sacrifice, you're doomed until you accept it. I can reject it today, and tomorrow I can see I was wrong and accept it. But until I do... There is judgment waiting for me. Praise God. How many of you received Jesus as your Savior the very first time you ever heard the gospel? I didn't see a single hand. You know, most of you heard it. Not all of you heard it more than once before you accepted it. All right? So after you... You see, there was nothing waiting after you heard the knowledge of the truth, after you heard the gospel, you rejected the sacrifice. There, if you had died that night, there would have been judgment waiting for you. But, 
six weeks later, somebody else shared the gospel with you again. And you think, hmm, this is two people in six weeks. Maybe I ought to accept this. Maybe, maybe, what, maybe God's trying to tell me something. So you accepted the, the knowledge of the truth. You accepted the sacrifice. See, it wasn't an eternal thing. It was until you changed your mind. That doesn't sound like unpardonable, does it? Praise God. Now he says, how much, more, how much worse punishment do you uh, suppose will be thought worthy who, is, who has trampled the Son of God underfoot? counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing. Well, does that sound like me? Well, Jesus just died like every other man. Jesus was just nailed on a cross like, like every other Roman criminal. And, you know, he was a good man, but they thought he was a criminal, so he just died. It was just a common thing. We don't realize that his blood was a serious thing. Now, he says that when we do that, we have insulted the spirit of grace. When we reject the grace that is offered to us, we are insulting the spirit of grace. He doesn't mean you messed up. This has got nothing to do with messing up. I mean, that would be a serious mess up if you did that. But that's not what he's not talking about you messed up. He's not talking about you made a mistake. He's talking about you reject the sacrifice. See, God so loved you that he gave Jesus to be the sacrifice. Praise God. Now, isn't that a drastically different picture than what has been preached from that passage of scripture isn't that I mean, isn't that so different that's not damnation no there, there's the damnation part in there if you reject it but if you if you believe and you receive all that damnation part goes away it's not for you Now, you know, this is why the picture we paint of God as being love and then, or, or let, me, let me just say this. If we say God is love, let, let me say it that way. If we say God is love, but then at the same time, we send a conflicting message that shows him to be anything and everything but love. If we don't realize everything in 1 Corinthians 13, that's what he is. If we don't realize he is love, if we don't realize he is long-suffering, if we don't realize he is patient, he is kind, if we don't realize he is all those things, in fact, I encourage you to read uh, 1 Corinthians 13, verses 4 through 8, and, and see everywhere it says this is what love is, so this is what God is. 
And if you'll do that, it will begin to change your perception of God. And then when you share the gospel with people, let me just say this. Be careful how you present Father. Not because you're going to make God mad, but because people are going to get the wrong idea about Father. And if they have the wrong idea about Father, then they'll reject Father. So we need to be careful how we present Him and, and be sure to present Him that He is a Father and He loves and He is for you and he's not trying to make it hard to get into the kingdom of God he's not trying to make it difficult for you to accept Jesus he has made it as easy as possible Jesus did all the hard part and it is so easy that all you have to do is believe it and a caveman and anybody else can do it. Only a few people understood that. But, yeah. But it's so easy. Even a child. In fact, children a lot of times have it easier because it's easier for them to believe it. Praise God. So I want to say today. If you've never received Jesus as your Savior, God has made it so easy for you. He's not trying to find an excuse to punish you. If He was trying to find an excuse to punish you, He already had one. He didn't even have to look. He already had one. But He, is, he was not wanting to punish you. He was wanting to save you. So he gave the sacrifice. And you see how the enemy of our soul has twisted the message of the sacrifice. He said, here's a powerful message of the sacrifice of Jesus. And by accepting that sacrifice, you can be saved. And the enemy came along and said, God, see here, this proves God's trying to punish you. It's just not the truth. I'm bringing you the knowledge of the truth, and I pray today that you do not reject the knowledge of the truth. Jesus wants you saved. He wanted it so much that he went to the cross in your place. Praise God. If you have never received Jesus as your Savior, but you believe what I've told you, then I want you to just repeat this after me. When we say amen at the end of this, you will be saved. Repeat this after me. Everyone in this room and everyone watching online, say this after me. Say, God in heaven, I thank you that you sent your son Jesus to die on a cross for me, that he paid for my sins, and you raised him from the dead so I could be saved. Today I choose Jesus as my Lord and my Savior. Thank you for saving me. Amen.
Thank you once again for joining us today online. We value you and we want to hear from you. If you made a decision for Christ today, you can select I Choose Jesus on our website. And we've got a couple videos for you to watch so that you can get started on your walk with God. We've also got a free ebook that you can download right from our website called I Choose Jesus. And I want to encourage you to do that. Once again, thank you for joining us. And remember that God is madly in love with you.